You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast Deer Season Special. These bonus episodes revolve around deer hunting stories and experiences from a host of deer hunters. These whitetail hunting BS sessions will be launched every week during the 2023 hunting season, adding fuel to your fire in the deer woods. Be entertained and hopefully learn something along the way. The title sponsor of the Deer Season Special Series is Vantage Point Archery, home to the toughest machined one-piece broadheads made in the USA. VPA products are built to last, which is why they have a lifetime warranty, and if you're not completely satisfied, you can send it back, which I highly doubt will occur. New to the lineup this year is VPA's Omega Broadhead. It combines the features of a single bevel with strength of a double bevel. This broadhead also comes with lay flat sharpening technology. You heard right, a single bevel broadhead you can lay flat and sharpen without a jig. You can find the Omega and all the other broadheads at vparchery.com. The Pennsylvania Woodsman is also brought to you by Radix Hunting, home of the M-Core cell camera, stick and pick camera accessories, and much more. Also brought to you by Vitalize Seed, a one-two planting system designed with diversity and biology in mind, making it the best food plot available. And lastly, by Huntworth Gear, quality hunting clothing at an affordable cost, makers of heat boost technology. This week we're joined by none other than the other Shirk himself. That's right, Steve Shirks from Shirks Guide Service is joining us this week to talk all things about his business. We're going to discuss what it's like to be a guide throughout the season, when he likes to guide the most. Steve's most passionate about archery, but we lead into a bigger conversation of guiding people throughout the season and what it's like to hunt in the big woods during rifle season and how some of those strategies have played out for he, his family, and mostly his clients. We're going to talk about still hunting, stand hunting, and everything under the sun when it comes to hunting the big woods the way that Steve Shirk likes to do it. So it's an all-around great conversation filled with all kinds of stories of big bucks that were shot and ones that got away. Thanks for tuning in. So joining me today on the show, I got the other Shirk in town from Pennsylvania, Mr. Steve Shirk. How you been? Good. How about yourself? Oh, I am kicking and, kicking and rolling as much as I can. We, you know, it's been really fun my uh, my two boys. I've got a three year old and a one year old, and the three year old is becoming such a personality now. Like, like he has his own personality. He's very reactionary stuff. And I think the funnest thing I've had so far is every time we get in the truck, I always put on the country music that I like to listen to. And right now his kick is listening to Hank Williams Jr. and I love it. I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing my tail off at it. Yeah, I know just what you mean. Seems like the other day my son was three and. He's kind of like, uh, it's just neat to see which little avenues they take as far as, you know, like I said, when they, when they develop a personality, what their interests, you know, what they're starting to show an interest in and what they like and what they don't like. And so you're in a real exciting time. So it's really cool that I, you're enjoying that. I, I kind of see it as like the building block years, and there's so many times I'm just like, this is such a pain in the neck, but at the same time, it's going to go by so quick, and I don't want to miss it. Now, your your son's getting getting a little bit older there. Is he starting to get to the age where he's interested in deer hunting? 
Um, he is somewhat. He's really into sports, though. Yeah. Um, baseball and basketball. Uh, it's uh, what I want to say. Like it seems like the sports take over so much of his free time that you know I, don't, I probably don't get him out enough. But mm. it's certainly not a complaint on my end. True. He, uh, I'm also enjoying like I'm coaching a lot. You know the sports forum and. Um, as long as he's happy and doing things that are outgoing and good for him, you know, that's fine with me. Man, that has to be quite the balance because you've got between landscaping, scouting for the, the upcoming season, <laughs> and then being a coach and dad, like how the heck do you balance that? Uh, it's it's just crazy. Like, I mean, I'm not complaining, but it just seems like there's never a minute of my day, even in the, in the late evening hours, that there's not something on my schedule. So, uh, you know, but I'm also not like a real laid back, like sit on the couch kind of person. I like to stay busy. So in a lot of ways, this is, this is, makes my life more enjoyable for me than having to think about mowing the lawn or weeding the flower beds at the house and chores. Like I'd rather be doing stuff with my son and my family. So, sure. you know, definitely, it's definitely a good time in my life. Sure. So how has the, the preseason scouting been going into 2023 for you? Any any different changes for you going into things, or was, was it the still same grind that you normally do? Um, I mean, effort-wise, I would say it's the same. I'm really starting to uh, to really put in, you know, a lot of scouting effort right now. Um, kind of luckily, at least good and bad, but I'm not getting, or a lot of my landscaping stuff is slowing down. Like a lot of it's just like maintenance and that. But mm -hmm. I worked real hard this summer to try to get ahead. Um, I didn't think I'd be in this position, but uh, I only have like one or two decent jobs for the rest of the year. Then I think my employees can kind of take care of the rest for me. So uh, that being said, that's going to get me in the woods a lot more, which I'm already, like I said, getting freed up. But as far as, you know, what this year is looking like. Um, I think the deer numbers are really good, especially big buck numbers. Uh, but things are a lot different this year. Like we haven't had a good acorn crop in like three years. Mm -hmm. We finally, we finally seeing acorns this year. We've been getting a fair amount of rain. I mean, early in the summer it was super dry and I was kind of worried, but most of the summer we've got plenty of rain. So, I mean, other years, past couple of years, water has been an issue. It just seems like this year, like, it just seems like it has a lot of good potential. There's a lot more things that, that I see that get me excited and confident than other years. So, um, I mean, you can never be for sure. I'm not going to plan or definitely make any predictions, but you know, I just feel really good about what I'm seeing this year. Yeah. That makes me feel good too. And makes me like have a little bit more confidence just because like some of the time I spent scouting, I noticed there was, there was decent acorns in a few places that I scouted and, uh, you know, conversing with some of my buddies in the other places that I hunt that they were kind of doing some, some legwork. They were talking about finding acorns, which the areas that they hunted actually excited me because those are areas that I spend time bear hunting. And I feel like it's been so long since we've had, you know, years where it's like walking on marbles through the woods and, you know, you can't let a laurel bush or a rhododendron bush unturned without seeing if there's a bear on the other side which i really enjoy that and that part of the the uh the hunting but you know the the mass crop definitely has a huge impact on stuff let me ask you how many years has it been now since you've uh you've you've run the guide service um i mean whitetail guiding is probably going on i'd say about 11 now but i've been guiding 
could say guiding since literally like 19, 20 years old. I'm 37 now, mm-hmm. but I started off, maybe you knew, I might have said it before, but I started off guiding grouse. Just kind of a long story though, but uh, it just wasn't my thing. I mean, it was still really cool to be in the woods all day, get paid, and take people hunting, but I'm not much of a grouse hunter. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, obviously a big passionate deer hunter. So I ended up switching over and, uh, you know, doing the whitetail thing. And, uh, like I said, it's been going re- really, really well. Um, I'm just about all booked up. I have a few spots left, but, uh, you know, I'm on both ends of my own hunting and, um, you know, the way, the way the season's looking and, you know, the business, like, like I said, I'm just real excited. Uh, don't have any, Thing real negative to say so far, so well, that's I'm not going to be complaining. Yeah. yeah, as a guide, like you know, I've I've obviously I've never guided, but I've definitely been in situations hunting where whether it's a group hunt or I'm taking a friend or family member or something with me, and like I always, you know, you always put pressure on yourself in a sense when you're taking people hunting because you, you you know you feel like their expectation might be um, you know higher than than yours so to speak, and and you want to you want to produce and stuff like that. So when you get uh, booked up. You know, fully through the season, which is fantastic. Um, are, are you at the point now of doing this as long as you have, where you kind of have a good feel of how the seasons are, have the potential to go, or, or, or like t- I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like what it's like season to season. If is it different every year as far as the highs and lows, or do you have a good sense of what that expectation should be like? Not necessarily, I guess, from you know, every hunting season is different, but from like client expectations and trends you see through seasons. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah. Well, I mean, I will say, yeah, every year is a little bit different. There's also similarities too, but you know, every, every human being is different. Obviously that would make every hunter different. So, um, uh, you know, as you get new guys every year, you know, you don't know what to expect. Uh, I'll be honest with you. You know, sometimes the hunter, it's just very hard to cater to, very hard to meet their needs. Uh, may not be in good physical condition. Mm. Some of them uh, just, you know, aren't probably aren't meant for like the big woods or, you know, mountain buck style of hunting. They think they are, then they try it, you know, climbing, climbing up steep mountains every day and, you know, hunting areas with low deer densities. Like, you know, you, when you get new clients, um, that's where things can really change in a hurry. It, Luckily, we get a lot of the same people to come back every year, too, and that's always nice because, like, you just, you've gotten to know the hunter, you know what their expectations are, you know their needs, um, you, and even also, like, they start to become familiar with the area where it's just much easier to put them in, in areas every year because they've been so many places already. You know, we have hunters that if we think their spot is good again, you know, we'll, we'll kind of give them that spot, you know, if we feel that, you know, there's a good deer in the area or it just seems, you know, like just has good numbers or what, dependent on their standards too. But, um, like I said, the, the more people you get back to come every year, the easier it gets. And, and then the more new ones you get, the more of a challenge it gets. And if that kind of answers your question. Yeah, that makes sense. The, so like, you book through a lot of archery season and you book rifle season as well. Do you have a favorite time that you really enjoy guiding or is the, is the guiding itself, does that not change regardless of the phase of season? I definitely am more into the, the archery part and like 
you know, the three on the guide three weeks in archery anyways. The, okay. You know, the last week of October, first two weeks of November. Um, but that's definitely my favorite period. I think because in gun season, there's more hunting pressure. Um, there's also not quite the same your activity at a high level, you know, because you're starting to get towards the tail end or maybe no rut at all. Um, it's just more exciting when, uh, you know, when, when your clients are coming back and you can, you know, all of them had a lot of action and just the rut. Like I am, I'm not going to say everyone likes the rut the most, but that is my favorite time to be in deer woods. Uh, uh-huh. So when I get to share that with, with a bunch of different hunters, you know, that they're kind of feeling the same passion as me and not dealing with a lot of hunting pressure at that time. Like that's, that's definitely my favorite you know, at that time. Yeah. And it would be my favorite too. So, and you've, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the, you're on a streak here for the last few years where you've been able to, to punch your tag during archery season. It's been a while since you've been gun hunting for, to fill your buck tag, right? Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I haven't even kept the number, but uh, probably like 12 years or something like that. Okay. So, um, but, uh, you know, also, you know, I'm not definitely not going to say that, like, you know, I'm the, the best deer hunter. I think when I started guiding, um, like, it also made me a better deer hunter. Plus, you know, it, put, it puts me in the woods a lot more, too. So, and I... You know, I don't have that nine to five office job. Like, I I don't hunt probably as much as what some people would think, but you know, I definitely get out like every morning, uh, especially throughout the rut, anywhere from you know one to three hours, or occasionally a little bit longer. I get some afternoon sits in for an hour or two. Like, when you're when you're able to put a lot of time and and go like you know pretty much every day, like I do think that has a huge impact on my success versus someone that like i said works works in a factory or whatever and gets that one week a year like you know and it could just be very lousy conditions Mm -hmm. just not you know not line up right so uh definitely the guiding thing is is impacted my success in a lot of ways well and one one way i wonder if it is impacts it in a positive way just thinking out loud like i know for myself when i'm trying to make a decision on what stand to sit, when to when to attack, if I'm going after, you know, a specific deer or just time frame where deer like to frequent that I'm of the caliber I'm after, something along those lines. Like, I play the cat and mouse game. I think a lot of us do of second-guessing yourself. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is, my, this is what my gut tells me, but, you know, something else in the back of my mind is telling me, well, but you've got this caveat, maybe you should do this. And then, uh, you know, of course, it always seems like you make the wrong decision and you learn later that you should have went with your gut. But, like, when it comes to guiding people, do you do you find yourself where you just keep the logic and say, yeah, this is where you need to go, you, and, and you know, as long as this is, you know, fitting your, your uh, I guess as a client, you probably have an, an, an idea or of what you want to do or how you want to do it. But as long as it f- meets it from a physical standpoint, you can get there and you can hunt, uh, whether it's a pre-hung or they're going to do a climber or whatever that might be. Um, but if you say based on just solely on deer movement and the, the caliber of deer, you're going, you know, this is what I've got. I, this is where you should go. And, and I don't overthink it, so to speak, with guiding. Or do you still have that same same lingering problem even when you guide? 
Um, no, I actually think I I can't afford to overthink it because you know sometimes I got six to eight hunters at a time, and uh, it's just it would make it too difficult. You know, I I I'll pre-scout for everyone. Um, you know, try to try to get everyone on something as fresh as possible and kind of leave it at that. Uh, you know, you did bring up a good point though. Like I usually, anytime I get a new hunter, I, I take it easy on them at first. Like I'd rather go easy than like beat someone up right off the bat as far as, uh, you know, the, the terrain that they're going to have to go through to get to a spot or even like, uh, you know, I'm real easy on them as far as I don't, I don't really force them. I never force anyone, but Sometimes if it's a guy that I know is going to hunt hard, I'll be like, man, you need to sit here three full days in a row versus like a new, a new hunter say, you know, let's try this out for a day or two and sit there as long as you want. But, you know, when you want to leave, you know, it is what it is. Like I'm not, I don't pressure them as much because like not everyone, like I will hunters, like there's more hunters that talk the talk than walk the walk. And, you know, it's uh for anyone to like put in, you know, six, eight hour stretches in a tree stand or maybe even longer than that. Like there's actually not a lot of hunters, especially, uh, you know, that I guide that are willing to really hunt that hard, honestly. So, uh, you know, you, I've learned, you know, this is a business and you know, it, it's like, yeah, I want them to have success, but I more, more than anything, want them to be comfortable and to have fun. I mean, I've had guys that, have just come and they're like, we only hunt a couple hours in the afternoon. But you know, if they obviously they pay and they want to come back year after year, I look at it more from a business standpoint. Then they might hurt my success rate or or whatever. But it, overall, I haven't had a lot of trouble. You know, the past few years, especially getting people to come. So I don't worry too much about the success, except like I said, certain people. I'm like. You know, I've had this guy for a few years. He's a grinder. Like mm-hmm. sometimes I'll even put them in areas where I, where I just know based on their mindset that they can handle it. it you talk about guide expectations and learning from people. I have a funny story I got to share. So, 2019, um, myself and two of my really good hunting buddies, we went on an elk hunting trip with a guide to Montana. And, uh, we, we go out and, you know, this is, we, you know, met the person through phone. I met him in person one time and, uh, you know, there was, there was two guides and three hunters and we went on this hunt and we ended up killing three bulls. It was fantastic. But, uh, early in the hunt, um, one of the guys that we, that was hunting with us, uh, hit a bull and he, he on paper, it looked like he hit it perfect, but for whatever reason, the bull was still alive after six hours, and we we, we kind of surrounded the drainage that it went into, and the guide took, you know, we all positioned at certain areas, and the, we were sneaking around trying to, trying to, you know, see if we could get eyes on it, and in the process, as I'm with the guide, um, he looks down in the draw, and at the same time, we see this bull laying there, and he's still alive. And he's he's laying in a spot. His head is behind brush, but his body is in the wide open. Yeah. 
And I right away, I said, I said, how far is he? And I knock an arrow, and, I'm, and he goes, oh, that's too far, it's too far. And this is going to sound braggadocious. I'm not trying to be that way, but I practiced a lot that year, and that was probably the best I was ever shooting, and I like to practice long range, right? So it's a wounded elk. I'm thinking I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to kill him. So I said, no, how far is it? And he finally, <laughs> he finally tells me, 82 yards. I said, I can kill him right there. No, 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 it's not yours. He said, well, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll get the other guy over, and we'll sneak in. So, okay, it's not my elk. So I have I have a single pin side. I have it set at 82 yards, right? And I'm just sitting there and waiting. And, we, and the other hunter comes over and he goes, what? Is that it right there? I'm like, yeah. He's like, we could kill it there. I said, I know, but they tried to sneak a little bit closer. Well, of course, in the process, the bull sees him. It gets up and it runs up this cliff and it gets to a spot and, you know, it exerted itself pretty hard. And this bull was hurt and he was standing on a ledge. And, you know, in the process of him running, I'm at full draw and I'm I just – guessed I said he's got to be 100 yards and I put my pin where I thought it needed to be and just left one fly and ended up I hit it in the neck I didn't hit it great but I mean it at least gave us a blood trail to follow until we got the bull then but it was you know I, I ranged it afterwards it was like 105 yards and then uh, the, the, the guide was uh, the, the, the guide like you know he's focus mode you know he's watching the bull where it's going we watch it like a half mile up this draw and turn and then when it was all done he takes his binoculars down and he goes how far was that i said i ranged it after it was 105 you should have shot it when it was laying i said thank you and then he, so so I, I tell you that because he told me after the fact he goes i never know what to expect when hunters come in camp he said and to give you an idea i called in six bulls last year for six hunters all of them got a shot we only Got three of the bulls, he said, and the best shot was hit in the hind quarter, but it hit ephemeral already. It died in 80 yards. Wow. He said, so you never know what to expect when you're bringing a hunter in camp. And I'm, I was like, well, yeah, that's a perspective I never would have thought about. <laughs> yeah, I totally, totally know what you mean. Like, we we could have killed some absolute giants over the years that, you know, people either wounded or missed. Mm -hmm. I've been with guys. So I, when I first started, I would uh, – I would sometimes sit with a client and I've been with guys that got buck fever so bad that they couldn't even draw their bow back. So it's just, you know, every, every hunter is a little bit different. And until you've actually had that hunter, you know, for, for at least a full stretch of, of a hunt, like you don't know ever what you're getting into. They can, they can tell you anything that sounds good. And, you know, but there's, I've just learned like, you know, just to kind of keep an open mind and, it is what it is. So <laughs> it, it is, yeah. But it's definitely it has to make it interesting because it's a, it's an avenue of hunting that I don't think about very much. So when you were just talking about that with people, it, yeah, it, it's got to just yeah make it interesting. Uh, one yeah. thing I was wondering over the years, you know, you talk a lot, you, you've done a lot of scouting, you do a lot of trail camera information, you've you've talked about a lot of specific deer and how some of the stories have closed, whether it's been on other podcasts or things you've written about or posted about. And I, I'm kind of curious as, as you've done that, have individual deer taught you things that you've noticed for the whole population dynamic, or, or do you still come to the point where you say every deer has different behavioral characteristics and you're, you're never, you, you I feel like sometimes when I'm thinking about whitetails, like sometimes it's like the more I learn, the less I know in a sense. But yet I, you always learn something. Like, do you, you ever find yourself like with a, a specific deer, it teaches you more things that makes it easier 
in the future or for a hunting dining. I don't know if that, I word that that right. No, no, I know. And I've asked myself kind of that question before. Um, I think it's kind of 50, 50, like they all have their own different, uh, you know, behaviors, personalities. They're all a little bit different, but they all share a lot of the same things too. And you have to like, uh, to be able, you have to be able to balance when you're trying to learn from individual deer, uh, like, okay, is this something that is more likely that is just personal and, you know, this, this is mainly the, the, you know, this deer is only doing that rather than, you know, every other buck that, that you're going to hunt, especially a mature deer, like, is not going to do it. Like, trying to think of like an example, um, Trying to just give me a second, think back like on some some gear that I've hunted over the years, like like the one buck there, uh, Crazy Twelve. Um, I bring him up a lot. Mm-hmm. He might the name might sound familiar to you or whatever, but I hunted that deer, you know, a few years in a row. Um, but what was unique about that was really what led me to that deer was big bucks in this area prior to him you know, would, would live in that bedding area and they all kind of did this, did the same thing. So, um, like in that instance, like I was seeing similarities, you know, but I think where it, uh, where it gets a little different from deer to deer is like, you know, not every buck is going to rut the same. Um, they're all a little bit different when it comes to some of them move a little more in the daytime. Some of them are less spooky. Like, they all have different things outside of that, but you know, there's, especially with mature deer, like when it comes to like uh, maybe certain areas that just, you might've heard this before from other people who are like, man, every year there's a big buck in this area. Like that's where I find like the similarities because you know, your, your biggest bucks or your oldest bucks, definitely. I mean, they're always like taking advantage of like the best cover, the best food sources, the most security, you know, no hunting pressure. Like when you have those specific areas, like they all kind of think alike, Mm. but you know, and I could go on and on about that too. But like I said, it's like 50, 50, there's certain things in certain situations where they act similar. And then there's times when it's, like, you know, wow, I would have guessed this buck was going to do that because the other one did and night and day difference. So it's a tough thing to, uh, to figure out some. Well, this whole game I feel like is, is, I was talking about it with, uh, with Clint Campbell on a podcast and he's like, you never perfect it. You like, you're always looking for the next best thing, even though you, you might cross something off the list, but you never, it's not something you never perfect. And that's so true. You, You were talking about, uh, like certain trends and stuff like it's amazing. I'm thinking back to some of the, some of the camera data that I've been pulling the last two years where my camp is. Um, Mm -hmm. I've got cameras in different locations. Some of them are, you know, ridges that I think look like they're going to be really good for kind of rut movement. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, cover that I know is bedding, you know, whatever it is, but I, I always have a couple of locations that I've noticed I'll get, one big woods just giant that cruises through in the rut you know and it's like they're they're a roamer it's sometime in that you know mid-november time frame but it's it's some of the biggest buck that i get just doing their thing and i always think to myself what the heck do i got to do as far as you know 
camera clustering and moving to figure out where a deer like that that's roaming. I mean, how often do you run into a situation where you find a rut cruiser and can actually trace back and find maybe where he spends time, you know, at a time of year where I'm a little bit more comfortable trying to kill that deer when they've got some type of relative pattern in October? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say that that I do it easily, but I do get, like, I, I'll be honest with you, <laughs> I run so many cameras that, mm-hmm. like, I don't even get a lot of, like, surprise bucks even in the rut. It's just, and, and leaving these, the majority of these cameras out, you know, year-round, not always at the, on the same tree. Like, right now, I'm shifting cameras a lot because we're kind of in that phase where you're going from summer to fall patterns. But, you know, because I'm running so many cameras in such a widespread area, but, you know, still pretty thoroughly, um, it's like I've really developed uh, good history with a lot of these bigger deer because I'm seeing where they're at in the summer, I'm seeing where they're at in the fall, you know, and then I've been doing this program, and, and, you know, having so many cameras out for so many years that, like, the history and the data is, I mean, there's there's a real story and there's real good information with a lot of these deer. Um, so I think for me, like, that's been the key, like, you know, running 150, 170 trail cameras and well over 100 year round, like, that's really been the big key to to figuring these things out and not getting, like, those surprise bucks, like, you know, where the heck did that deer come from? Like, I don't really get that a lot, you know, mm-hmm. like I said, because I'm running so many cameras. I... One one thing cameras do for me is, you know, when when you watch stuff, I mean, it's so easy to get a little bit emotionally attached to a deer just because, you know, you you, you find some trend, you know, maybe you, you, you hunted one day and you left and he was on the camera right after you left or something stupid like that happens and just deer gets under your skin, right? Or maybe it's just it's a deer that, you know, is a, is a head turner from, from a headgear perspective. And I find when I when I've been able to pursue a deer like that and then close the story on him, whether I kill him or a hunting partner or something like kills him, it's a lot more satisfying for me personally than, um, and this is going to sound really weird because it, it, it is a positive thing, but I've killed mature deer that, um, I was happy about, but it was like, it was just a different story just because I didn't have the same backstory with that deer. It was one Mm -hmm. that just kind of, kind of got into me. Like, and, and you've been very open about this in the past on on other shows that you're looking for a mature buck. So I guess what my question may have been answered in a sense. You talk about not finding many surprise bucks. Do you feel like most of the time you've got some level of history with a deer that you know that mature buck is is that you know he'll do he 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 fits the script kind of deal. Yeah, I I wouldn't say fit the script like especially because most of my hunting, most of my guiding is during the rut and it's still a very unpredictable time. Like, you know, you'll hear some people say like they get a picture of a buck every year, even in the rut, like a three to five day window, sometimes even smaller than that. Like I don't really see that a lot, but like, I just know that deer is most likely in that area. Um, And, you know, we've got a lot of them that way just, you know, sometimes too, which is even better is we'll have, we try to put clients where we know there's multiple mature deer too. That's always better than oh, sure. you know, hunting one individual buck in the rut is super, super tough. Um, 
know, in fact, I don't really do that a lot unless I'm getting like, you know, you know, good recent intel, like several pictures in, in a five to seven day period in a certain spot. Uh, then I'm, I start to see, okay, you know, this deer is obviously coming through here consistently, mm-hmm. but you know, we just try to, we try to stay in those areas where these deer live, but yet we, we don't hunt the same exact trees or the same stands. Right. Like, you know, we might, a lot of our spots, like, we'll, you know, we'll have a spot and you might hunt it two or three times, two, three days in a row, and it never gets hunted again. But 500 yards from there, we got another spot. So we try to, you know, bounce around pretty good, but stay in these good areas where we know there's usually an abundance of shooter bucks. Mm. And, you know, eventually, hopefully someone connects with one. Do you uh, do you have any deer that are up your crawl this year that you're you're really hoping you cross paths with, or anything that's really in the forefront of your mind? Oh yeah, I mean, jeez, I, I there's fifteen, twenty like real good deer. Well, it's good one. to have that many because I don't have that many in my mind. I've like <laughs> well, yeah. I have like one or two. As, <laughs> yeah, you run as many cameras as me. Right. Uh, so obviously, you're gonna find more. But yeah, there's definitely a pile of them, and. Uh, this year may be better than most years ever. Like up, up our way, we had very mild winter, early spring, pretty low kill in a lot of areas last year. So just as producing, you know, a bumper crop for, you know, a lot of three to you know, some of these bucks. Honestly, I, I know bucks six, seven, eight years old too, but there's a lot of three and four, some five-year-olds this year. So, you know, even a three-year-old buck in the, in the big woods up here is, pretty close to a mature deer like we're never gonna i mean i don't have any you know size minimums at all but even if a guy's taking a three and a half year old pretty consistently like that's a pretty good deer even on public land so sure yeah we just got some really good numbers this year um i mean i'm super excited to say the least do you have any uh do you have any game plan in your mind of how you want to attack some things for yourself personally i know guiding is your focus and you're 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 you you put your clients first in a sense but you still hunt there's, there's got to be some kind of strategy weaving in and around that yep so what i've done this year to help myself out more is i've i've saved three or four areas just for myself um in a lot of these areas i'm i'm able to put more cell cameras out than usual because my problem is and it's not it's not a problem but like I hardly ever get to like scout for myself anymore. Like mm-hmm. it's not like, uh, you know, I'm going out, you know, I got six guys coming in on Sunday and then within a couple hours in a day, I find spots for everyone. Sometimes like I'll spend a whole day and don't find anything for anyone that I like. So the amount of time it takes to find good spots for all those people, like eats up my time to like really, you know, put myself in a good position. So, you know, I'm running, running more cell cameras for myself. That way, you know, I have some, some eyes in the woods. And like I said, I don't have any time to really check cameras for myself. That way, you know, I see something hot, you know, getting sent to my phone. I feel that's fair enough. Uh, You know, and I can just totally focus on all the footwork and boots on the ground scouting, mainly for my clients. Um, and, you know, I've left a few areas just for myself uh, you know, and not, you know, once again, not like the biggest bucks. I mean, nice bucks, but just areas that I'm, I have a lot more confidence in that I feel like should be good. Um, that way, uh, 
you know, once again, I, I don't have time to go into areas and try to figure anything out. So, uh, you know, I'm excited too that, you know, someone might say that's a little bit selfish, but believe me, I mean, I love to hunt more than a guy and I'm still putting in 99% of the work for my clients and not for myself. I don't think it's selfish at all, and the reason I say that, Steve, is because let's face it: when you're when, when you talk about trophy hunting, trophy hunting is probably one of the most selfish things that we can do. I mean, we're it, it is the ultimate pursuit between man versus beast, and um, most people don't want to share that in any capacity. You, on the other hand, decided to take um, the, the the giant conglomerate of woods that you have in your neck of the woods and share it with people and guide guide people and, and put people in places that you've you've hunted for a, a good duration of your life or explored and uh, I, I don't think that's selfish at all to say you're going to be putting four three four areas aside for yourself now those areas are you going to be pouncing on them as like a rut strategy or are you going to kind of uh piece your way through using those cell cameras mostly um yeah probably mostly just what i'm seeing on the cell cameras i do have you know, certain spots in those areas where I don't have cell reception and I got other stand sites picked out. Um, but, you know, overall, you know, I might sit back a little bit more and just kind of use the cameras and, to monitor these areas. That way, you know, once again, I just don't have the time to even go in there and try to figure it out piece by piece. And it's still challenging because every season's a little bit different too. And uh, until the season unfolds and starts to develop like you can never be for sure but this is still a better situation than what i've been in in a long time um now you know i'll be honest with you like uh you know especially last year last year was was a tougher run up this way like i mean i i literally like i kind of even lost some of the joy of even hunting for myself because like I never felt a lot of times that I was in a good spot. Like I just, I'm just getting in a tree real quick somewhere and, you know, maybe had some past success there, but like hardly any scouting for myself. And I enjoyed that part of it. Like I don't want to just go sit in a tree anywhere just because it's the rut. But, you know, that, so now at least having these cameras out, um, you know, doing a little more for me, uh, I feel like I'm a little more involved in my own personal hunting. Yeah, that's fantastic. And this would be a weird transition, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, you're very into archery hunting. You, It's your favorite thing. You're guiding, you already said it's your favorite thing. But I am curious what the dynamic is like during gun season. You know, I, I feel like a lot of podcasts we we focus on archery hunting mature buck mm-hmm. during the best time to kill a mature buck but uh let's face it the orange army is very real and there's people that listen to this show that enjoy that part of it and uh yeah there's more pressure and stuff but what's it like uh in shirk's guide service camp <laughs> from the from not just the aspect of the hunting but the camp camaraderie side of things too yeah well um i will say so the, the guiding camp is only the second week of gun season because uh, I always spend time at our family camp, you know, the first week. There's such a tradition and such a history there. And, you know, I've been doing that my whole life that, you know, I, I still guide, um, but, you know, my clients don't stay at our camp. But as far as the hunting goes, um, you know, I don't, I probably don't give the, 
the rifle hunts enough talk and enough credit because I think the success rate for rifle hunts is is probably anywhere 50, 60, 70%. Well, I mean, um, there's some hammers on your, on your page and your website that yeah. were rifle kills. And that's kind of one reason I brought it up. Yeah, exactly. Like we've, uh, I, although I, I don't guide nearly as many, but I want to say seven or eight people last year for rifle. So the majority, you know, I'm doing an archery and in the rut, but, um, it's, I guess maybe not as passionate about gun and rifle, but the one good thing is when they do see a buck, most of the time they get a shot at it. And sure. it's a lot easier to, to connect with a rifle than, than it is, you know, archery equipment. So, um, it's still a really, you know, a really fun time. Um, we, as far as strategy goes, like, you know, opening day is a little bit tricky. It's hard to really have a game plan as far as what the deer are going to do naturally because you got so many people in the woods, you know, bumping deer around. Uh, we, you know, a lot of years we don't even get anything opening day because it's just, just hard to predict. Like, you know, you can know a big deer or a couple big deer in an area, but they can get bumped out, you know, as soon as, as soon as it gets daylight or even sooner. Um, but we've kind of had more success kind of mid first week and late first week. Things start to die back down. I also try to monitor, you know, areas that, uh, that haven't been pressured. A lot of times I'll throughout the week, like I'll get out of the woods, you know, I have my clients in stands and, uh, I'll just take rides around to some areas just to see if, uh, you know, whether this was, was there much hunting pressure here or not. But, the pressure is the name of the game. Like, mm. I try to avoid that hunting pressure and try to find areas that maybe are a little harder to, to get to, a little bit overlooked. Um, but when I find those non-pressured areas that I've already scouted ahead of time, then I can usually get on some of those bucks because they're kind of doing doing things a little bit more naturally then, and uh, that's when we've had most of our success. Yeah, the past two years I've had an area um, up near camp where – uh, those cameras, once rifle season comes, just are absolutely dead because of the pressure. And then uh, on, on at the same time, there's other cameras that will actually get a little bit more active into the second week. And I you know, I always wondered why. In the second week of rifle season is not a time I've spent much hunting. Um, you know, Most of the time I'm done. We, you know, the big hurrah with the group of guys is done the first week. And, uh, you know, Lord willing, most of the time I, I have a tag punch, so I'm, I'm not out that time. But I do know people who spend more time the second week, and that's interesting that, uh, that you say that. And just, just because I don't, I don't think the second week is talked about a lot, like from a Pennsylvania hunter standpoint. Yeah, no, I, like I said, when I'm not going to say things, uh, you know, get completely back to normal. Um, and if an area was really hunted heavily, you know, opening week, um, usually even by the second week, those deer pushed out. But why I like the second week a lot is the fact that, you know, yes, there isn't hardly anybody hunting then. And once I find these non-pressured areas, you have them to yourself and you're going to have a lot of success that second week, uh, with a rifle. And I mean, there's nobody, I mean, I've had areas that, uh, that, I mean, that I know, you know, four or five big deer living in and not even within a, you know, in a square mile area or more. And I'm confident not one hunter even passed through there the entire gun season. So like 
to find that kind of stuff, that's when things get real promising. And, and uh, like I said, um, I'd probably take more gun hunters. The problem that I get into is, I guess it's not so much the lack of desire to gun hunt, but I also, in my landscaping business, a lot of our winter work is snow removal, snow plowing, and mm. it's pretty tricky up my way because if I have too many people that I have to guide and help out and it's snowing, like it's hard to, to be in two places at once and run both businesses effectively. So, uh, sure. Uh, but I, honestly, the success that you can have gun hunting, uh, or that we've had has been pretty darn good. And I'm curious, is a lot of the gun hunting that you do, is a lot of that going to be, uh, still stand hunting or do, do a lot of the people actually kind of like to still do you like have people still hunt in areas? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, it's a good mix of both. However, there's more still hunting than stand hunting. But what I try to do is give my clients like, you know, like a map route and not to like, you know, I encourage them like go 50 yards, sit down, sit there 15, 20 minutes go another 50, 100 yards, like sit down on this log or get up on this point and sit here for a while. Like they're not covering a ton of ground, but they are still hunting, you know, to and from these, these little micro type stand locations. Um, but it's been, it's been a very, very good strategy. Um, also too, if, uh, as long as I'm, which I usually, usually am not plowing snow too bad, but usually I take one of the clients with me and you know we'll do a mix of both too but uh you know i'll help out with still hunting and glassing and you know even just getting that person you know comfortable and in the right areas a lot of times too if, if there's like a younger hunter or less experienced hunter in a group or in camp i'll be like i'll take that person if you guys don't mind because you know usually they're very understanding with choice sure. they more assistance than than some of the other more experienced hunters. Yeah, that's good. And, and thinking about still hunting too, because you know it can be very, very tricky with the topography that we have in the northern part of the state as far as wind thermal stuff goes. So when like, when you give people routes, um, do you? And I'll, I, I know when we've we've talked about this the last time you were on the show, we talked about um, stand location and how the wind can be so iffy when you're on stand and it's some, it's so hard to predict and you almost gotta, gotta just roll with it. Do you kind of have that same thought process when you're still hunting too, or, you know, some places if you're saying, well, um, this is more of a, a South facing slope. I, I think you ought to stay at this elevation most of the time, just because of a thermal advantage. Like, is there any of that thought process into that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I always tell the hunter that, you know, even though I know these woods like the back of my hand, like when it comes to wind and thermals, sometimes certain areas are no, not predictable or consistent at all. So I always tell them, keep those things in your favor. And sometimes the hunter will have to go completely against the game plan I gave them. They might not even be able to go, you know, into the spots that I, you know, that I've told them, or even if it's a stand, like I can't go in there and physically check the wind at every stand, you know, for each hunter. And this isn't Kansas, like in the mountains, <laughs> just because it's calling for a west wind doesn't mean that's what it's going to do in the mountains. So, you know, they have to make those adjustments and decisions. And, you know, I give them plan B and plan C and different options. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been times too where 
just the client being in the right general area, you know, has had success. I also remember uh, one time uh, uh, a distant cousin of mine, um, he, he brought a guy in from Buffalo and that was part of the deal was he, uh, he said, I'll bring this guy in, get you a client. And then, uh, you, you also put me in a spot for free. And I was like, yeah, sure. What the heck? So <laughs> the first day of gun season, you know, I had spots for each of them, only like 300 yards apart. And, uh, long story short, you know, I think they saw a few does each the opening day, but not much, but they ended up switching stands and, uh, the second day, which I didn't tell them to do that, but they decided that's what they wanted to do. And, uh, kind of worked out a little bit better because the buck we were hunting was this giant eight point pushing 150 inches. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my client shot it out of my, the, the stand that I put my cousin in. And I actually didn't even know that they swapped, but, but my point is, is like, even though that wasn't related to weather and anything, but like there's certain situations that like that happened, like, you know, Steve, I know you told me to do this, but I ended up seeing something different or I did something, but a lot of it, just getting these people in the right general area, um, has been good enough for me as well. Well, yeah, and it's better that way to have somebody want to deviate and do something on their own that they're happy with doing rather than saying, you know, coming back and say, well, this is what you told me to do and it didn't work and, you know, having a, a, a very negative outlook or expectation because I'm sure you have to have that in some people who, um, you know, are, are just more difficult to, to cater to. That happens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one buck, too, that I had a lot of history with, I called Goliath. I remember mm -hmm. the first time I, I laid eyes on that deer, it was 80 yards in front of a tree stand that my client should have been sitting in. Well, here, he did get uncomfortable in the stand. It's just a metal ladder stand. And he sat on a log that was right below the stand. But the problem is him sitting on that log, he couldn't see down the ridge like he would have been able to up in the elevated tree stand. And that giant buck was 80 yards from that guy and he couldn't see it at all. In fact, he was so close to seeing it because I can remember peeking up over this ridge to actually walk him out. He, he radioed me and said, you know, he wanted to quit early. It was like four o'clock, but oh, geez. You know, so when I came to get him, as soon as I peeked up over the ridge and I see Goliath, I look and I'm like, why isn't, why, why can't he see the deer? And then I didn't see the guy in the stand. Then I see about two inches of his orange hat. And that's all I could see over the crest of the ridge. But that's what the, his problem was, was he was down too low where he couldn't see kind of over the bench or over oh the knob. My. Yeah, that buck's right out in front of him. So, like, little things like that, you know, happen all the time. Um, he was uncomfortable. He decided to sit on a log where he could only see about 30, 40 yards, and big deer got away. So... So many situations like that. I was going to say, you've probably got a, a, a story. You could probably write a chapter book on situations like that that have happened in hunting scenarios over the years. Yeah. I mean, it, I've guided so many different kinds of people. and Honestly, people from all over the country. Um, it's just like you've I'm not going to say I've seen, seen everything, but I've seen a lot of different situations and a lot of, uh, I don't want to say things that really make me angry. Um, anymore I, i'm a little bit more laid back about it and 
I, I try to laugh it off more than get upset as long as it's like, you know, not like uh, they're doing anything illegal. Then, then that would be a different situation. But yeah, I've seen a lot of different bloopers. Um, and like I said, not to brag about myself, but a lot of people talk the talk, but not many walk the walk. And I know I keep bringing that up, but that really is the case. Uh, that's just the way a lot of deer hunters are. Once they get out there and it becomes a grind, then you start to weed through uh, the, what I want to say, maybe the novices and the, mm-hmm. the wannabes. There's not as many grinders out there as what some people would think. Yeah, and I, I mean, another way I've communicated that too, and like I said, whenever you have this conversation, you can always going to somebody's always going to hear this through a different scope and, and take it into the negative aspect. And I don't mean it that way, but I, I've always said there's, there's hunters and there's, there's people who go hunting. And my, my, my comparison to that was, um, I played football. I don't really feel like a football player. Like my level of interest and knowledge of the game is not like that of some of my, uh, my, my best friends and stuff that have that interest. I mean, I played the game and had fun and I, th- I think there's a lot of deer hunting. There's a lot of people that like to go deer hunting when it's that time yeah. of year. But, um, you, you know, the, I guess the, the next level thought process, like the strategy, like the, you know, going through the playbook and, and, and technique and stuff like that it's it's not as it's it's going to be a lesser number of people in that in that category i guess and um knowing what uh knowing what constitutes uh hunter versus going hunting well that's that's probably a conversation we don't need to go down that rabbit hole but there's definitely a, a line there i think yep and you know if it, if it was me uh you know especially being prime time going back on the Goliath situation with my client, like I would, I guarantee four o'clock being prime time, a little bit of back pain, whatever, like I'm going to suck it up and sit there another 45 minutes. I don't care how uncomfortable I get. Like that's usually the fine line between someone that just loves hunting and is extremely passionate about it. And then someone who just, okay, you know, I went hunting today and you know, I quit early, but still had a good time. Like that's usually, that's kind of like the the line in in the sand to kind of decide what kind of hunter that person is. Mm. You've talked about that deer frequently over the years, and I'm sure that's one that's really gotten under your crawl. There are other ones that just like, you know, doesn't matter what happens from season to season. Like this specific deer is one I will always remember, whether you killed them or you didn't in any capacity. Yeah, I mean, to maybe bring up a kill, the buck I got in 2021, um, although I didn't have a ton of history, only like a couple years of history with the deer, but it was like my number two deer uh, that I that, that I was after, which is pretty rare. Um, like, you know, it wasn't one that I really kept for myself, but kind of what happened was... Uh, um, it's a little bit more of a hard to get to area and you know we don't have a lot of clients that are usually wanting to to go way back in rugged terrain you know all that kind of situation um but where i got kind of lucky was i had throughout the week i had guys killing bucks so i had less clients and then i had uh, a couple like my last two clients that week they they ended up leaving early. They had like some family situations that came up and they had to leave. So I ended up getting two days 
pretty almost two full days, at least more than a day and a half to to actually hunt for myself. Like I went in there, checked the cameras. I mean, the deer was showing up like crazy in a certain spot. Um, and uh, like that, to, to go into an area, um, know there's a big deer in there, um, and like to get to hunt it for myself, uh, like that was, that was one of the most memorable hunts of my life because once again, I just don't get those situations that much at all. I mean, if had those guys not left early, I would have never got that deer. I wouldn't have the time to hunt it. Um, but I mean, I, uh, I also went in there, you know, pre-season or post-season, you know, strategically put cameras in, in different locations just for that deer. Like there was a huge process, um, that it was going to be more for a guiding situation, but it just lined up, you know, everything lined up for me to be able to hunt that deer. Um, it's just a beautiful, just awesome looking 10 point, you know, ton of character, big, huge brow time. Mm-hmm. Like just, it, it's, I, I'm still, I still can't get over it. Just the fact that I just don't get that situation much anymore. So. It was awesome. Yeah, those are pretty sweet. Uh, what about uh, what about deer that you've followed along for years that you finally put a client on? Um, yeah, I mean we've had you know, even that uh, that big eight point. You know, I know I brought it up a little bit uh, that my one client shot there in gun season, but you know, we've we had that deer on camera three or four years. I mean, it's probably mm. a seven or eight year old buck, um, just a big, huge, giant, big woods eight point. Um, and that's the thing too about you know when you start to develop history with a deer, I don't want to say it gets easier to kill it because I mean they're getting smarter every year too. But like you you just get so much information year after year, mainly from trail cameras that you know you start to connect more and more dots. And um, I mean I'll I'll be honest with you, I I had a lot of cameras in that area and I wasn't getting much for pictures of that deer you know, before my client. Uh, shot him, but I went in there. Um, it was like I don't know, a few days before the season. I saw the deer uh, with a doe, with a hot doe, and this is something too that I'll bring up. I don't mean to bounce off to different topics here, but no, please do. So I saw that deer like three days before gun season, locked out a doe, and it was in a doe bedding area. That's why these guys were in there. Um, and so they shot, or he shot the buck five days after I saw it, and it was locked on a doe. And I honestly think the buck was with the same doe for five days. And you, you, you would never think that. Like, um, you know, you read anything, like a dose estrus cycle is like half of that time frame. But I, that's where it comes to, you know, to like, not everything's written in stone, you know, in the whitetail world and even biology. Like that buck could have known that, okay, this is one of the last does that hasn't been bred in my area. And I'm just going to hang with her until she's willing, until she comes back in heat. But I still believe to this day um, that that deer stayed with that same doe. Just it was in the same exact pretty much spot where I saw him, you know, with, with a doe that time of year. So. Um, but you know, having that deer on camera, like I said, for three, four years in a row and just starting to connect dots and shrink things down, like that's really what led us to get that deer. Deer you have history with, you know, for a number of years, 
you know, you do exactly what you just explained. You start to devise a plan, whether it's camera placement and stand placement and areas you hunt, to try to game plan with that. So the ones that you've been able to follow along for years and then connect with, whether it's yourself or a client, how often is it that, you know, you, you get, you, you kill the deer and you go, yeah, this is kind of what I had in my mind and vision, you know, it would be somewhere in this area or maybe time frame or whatever versus how many times do, do you have, uh, history with a deer and then when when the the close does happen and you kill the deer it's like well that's a complete 180 compared to what i expected if we if we were able to connect with this deer whether it's location base or time frame or something like that yeah um i mean i can't say we've ever killed one that was like holy cow that deer um was way out of his home range or never had that deer over here although i've had like non uh you know non-guided people like shoot some of our biggest deer just word of mouth like holy cow they shot that buck over there but as far as a, a guiding perspective in that situation like i mean there's been a lot of them where you know we knew we knew that big deer was in the area we didn't really think it was probably gonna be in that spot that client might have hunted a different deer or might have been hunting multiple different deer but, you know, it's the rut and anything can happen. And this other big one showed up that we might have been more on the fringes of where we thought that deer was going to be. Um, but that, that has happened many, many times. Um, I can also remember a time a couple years ago where uh, we had a couple guys uh, come in. And, uh, in fact, the one guy, the one guy came in and he hunted the last week of October for a week. And I don't, this is the honest to God truth. The guy came and it was just brutally warm. He never saw a deer in a whole week of hunting with us. Mm. That's pretty abnormal. I mean, it can happen, but he, instead of like, and that was his first time ever hunting with us. We're thinking this guy's never going to come back. Well, he calls us towards the tail end of archery season. He's like, would you mind if I came back? And honestly, I think I only charged the guy like a hundred bucks. Like he had, such a tough hunt. Like I just wanted the guy to, to really see what it's like here. Uh, you know, when, when it's good. So he comes in, um, kills on his first sit, kills a huge nine point, like 140 inch nine mm. deer. We had like multiple years of history with super old buck. Um, but we weren't expecting, expecting that to happen in that spot. Once again, same general area, but there was a hot doe there and, so the guy that he came with, um, out of the same stand the next morning, because that doe was still around, kills uh, like a giant freak buck. But that was a deer that we expected to be in that spot. But like, that's what I mean. That happens so much. Um, and once again, it's the rut. And, you know, if you're anywhere sometimes within four or five miles of where a buck lives, like the, something could show up. Uh, easily from that far away right and you just spurred a thought in my mind so like i'm thinking about some of the places i hunt in southeast pennsylvania when you think about where does bed you know i swear some doe bedding is so consistent year to year and mm-hmm. i feel like it's i actually feel like sometimes it's hard to get them to leave at like an area that they consistently go to even when you bump them out i feel like that you know they're they're a little bit more prone to staying some of those areas one of the things i was wondering is when you when you target doe bedding 
do you mm-hmm. see year to year similar uh, similar areas that get used more frequently from a doe bedding perspective versus versus bucks? Usually, pretty frequently, as long as the habitat doesn't change, especially food sources like. Does are always bedding fairly close to food. Exactly. Um, right. But that's usually the first thing I'll check. Like, uh, you know, for instance, if it's in an area that you're banking on acorns being the primary food source, um, I'm going to go to that, to where those oaks are and see if they produce and then plan on that bedding to be the same. Um, but, you know, if, if, as long, you know, kind of boil it down to, you know, to a smaller point, as long as, uh, you know, there's not a lot of change to the habitat. I totally agree. Like that's what's nice about does is, you know, they roam very little. They, they, and even, uh, you know, sometimes like you said, when a fair amount of hunting pressure, like they still seem to stick it out. And in the rut, like if you can have consistent doe activity and pattern those does, I mean, that's what's going to bring bucks in. So that's something that uh, we've done a lot of, uh, over the years is, you know, patterned our does and especially doe bedding because, you know, that's where they're at most of the daytime hours anyways. And that's where you can catch like, you know, those midday cruisers as well. So, uh, yeah, that doe bedding, um, when it's consistent, man, it makes for some good rut hunting. Well, you talked about, we, we touched a little bit talking about windows and you said you might not always see those windows where a, you know a, a buck is always here every year from october 18th to the 20th or something like that uh, in cases mm-hmm. i have seen that happen but the 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 main thing that i notice is and i'm thinking specifically to a, a property close to my house here um i, I notice a trend that the there, there's a window when Bucks in general just frequent this area, and I, I believe it is because from from my my trail cameras, it's right around the time some of the first does come into estrus, and there's always a, a time frame, and it's always the end of October. It, it's somewhere in the last ten days of October. I'm going to have frequent um, mature buck activity, mind you, but it, it'll you know I'll, I'll have deer cruise through this area that I don't see all year long, and it, it's it's now keep in mind it's a small area. This is not something that I've. It's not, you know, a hundred, a thousand, anything like that. It's a, it's a very small parcel. But I, I notice with these little blocks where I see similar doe movement year in and year out. That same time frame is when I start to see the, see buck movement. Maybe not the same buck every year, but it's it's that. And I, and I think it's just because of the habitual habit of those does. And I think that's an important point when it comes to a window for me personally. Yep. Um, yeah, I see. I see some similar situations. What I found, um, like those late October spots, generally, you know, if you have a good core area for a buck or maybe uh, in, you know, in a half square mile, you might have multiple mature buck core areas. Generally, it's those closest doe groups from those core areas that are getting hit in that later October period. Mm. Um, I think those bucks are communicated with those does a little bit throughout the fall. Um, and even, you know, literally right now, bucks are shedding their velvet, uh, testosterone's building every day. Like they're ready to breed does now. I know there might be some people that would, that are going to hear this and think I'm crazy. I'm not saying the rut is happening now, but if a doe came into heat right now, a buck would, 
with reader most likely like it's already that time of year it's just it's a long ongoing process to for when the breeding does finally happen but so these bucks even right now are a little bit going around checking out these doe groups not not in a ruddy situation but they're they're just kind of scouting them out um and they're not really ranging that far so you know, when they know it's getting close to time for those does to come into heat, you know, they're hitting those first ones closest to their core areas. I, I chuckle at that thought, Steve, because I have some hunting friends that I've I've joked around about this with. Them, but at the end of the day, there's there's still guys, and I think I think if uh, not to sound raunchy, but if you only got it once a year, you'd probably get a little <laughs> rammy early too. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know that's that's just the way it's. Uh, the male mindset is, and I'm sure it's for, you know, for bucks, once, you know, once that testosterone builds, I mean, they're every day, their desire increases. So, and that's when you, you know, in the rut, like you, you've probably had it. I've had it happen. Like I've had mature bucks with a hot doe. Like I could almost walk up to the buck because it's not that he doesn't know that I'm human or he's so in the rut, he, you know, he's all screwed up, but like their desire to breed for, in that situation sometimes overpowers their will to live and survive. Like I, even one buck I killed uh, two or three years ago, I was blind running. And then I had a group of does come in to the one side of me. Well, then here this nice buck comes in, but he came in downwind and got my scent while he spooked. When he got my scent, he ran like 50 yards. Then he, he stops and he looks way back over at that doe group, which I was in between him and the doe group. And this was a mature deer. And he, I literally could read his mind. He's like, you know what? Heck with it. He's like, I know there's a human there, but I'm going for those does anyway. He turned back around, walked right under my stand, and I shot him. But mm. That's where those hormones sometimes, uh, you know, overpower their way of thinking and uh, that's what also makes the rut a little more exciting sometimes it does and that's why people like it because i'm definitely somebody who would love to have a buck do something that stupid all every season for me <laughs> yeah i'm not saying that happens often but <laughs> i've seen a lot of crazy things happen in the rut i mean i've had sure. bucks literally crossing the road and like i had one run into my truck one time too like because there was a hot dough on the other side you know, of the road. I mean, they just, they just, they kind of, they go crazy. That's for sure. They certainly do, man. This has been good. Um, I think that's a good point to, uh, to cut this off here. Anything else you want to leave us before, uh, before we close this one out, Steve? Um, just, you know, all the listeners, uh, wish everyone, you know, a safe and successful season. Um, you know, we're literally what, about a month away or less from a I, know, I think part of PA will, will open up sooner, I guess, but down to the southern area, maybe in a couple of weeks. But overall, statewide, I mean, we got just about a month to go. And, uh, you know, it's just, like I said, I uh, I know there's there's so many people that listen to these podcasts. And, you know, I don't think I say it enough that, you know, I truly just appreciate, you know, people listening and enjoying what I have to say. But overall, uh, you know, take it for what it's worth and more than anything i just want people to have a fun safe and successful season including yourself so uh, that's all that really matters to me yeah i appreciate that and that's important because i think while these podcasts are definitely informative 
um, there, there's there's more of an entertainment side of things to this. You know, we're as we're recording this, we're we're leading into season. Uh, probably about the time this drops in, we'll be we'll be a good chunk of the way through our season, and I'm I'm hoping for that that very thing for us. And uh, and yeah, but no, thanks again, Steve, for uh, for coming on the show. Uh, always like to have the other shirk on the podcast. It's 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 good to have you, and I'll I'll we'll we'll, we'll do this again sometime. Yeah, from one shirt to the next. Uh, best of luck, and uh, I'll look forward to the next time we can get back together talking. <laughs>